0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org.
1: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 42 and 43. You can find it on page 469 in the Bibles in your rows. It's also printed in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. Psalm 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and the unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O oh God, my God. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, good morning again, New City. My name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and a friend of mine said to me this morning, He's like, You're preaching again? I was like, Yep, sorry about your luck. Uh, Josh is back soon, just relax. Uh, Shortly after Cheryl and I were married, we left Cincinnati to go to work at a camp and retreat center down near the Red River Gorge in eastern Kentucky. This was Wendell Berry country. We lived 40 minutes from a Kroger, from a college town, in a little holler at the end of a three-mile-long dead-end road. We had 300 acres, a pool, a couple of creeks, a number of caves, and a lot of critters. Our camp director really liked having animals around, and part of my job was to tend to the animals. And we had, according to my best recollection, uh, four horses, five llamas, A number of ducks, some chickens, two peacocks, a few goats with their weird eyes. Have you seen like goats' eyes? They're so weird. Um, A cat or two and about a half a dozen sheep. Now, Ma was the matriarch of the sheep flock, uh, and she bore a lamb uh, that I had to take to the vet to get fixed. And I will tell you, he never looked at me the same after we took that ride. (laughs) I think I've got a, we have a picture. There he is. That's Thor. Yeah, you can go, oh he's really cute. Um, I, I called him Thor. That's what I named him. My brother, when he visited, dubbed him Lammy Davis Jr., which is a much better name. Uh, and, but I think ultimately our camp director's 12-year-old daughter got to name him. Um, and for real, I don't even remember what his, she named him because I'm bitter. Uh, he'll always be my Thor to me. Anyway... Ma was the matriarch. She was uh, the mother of Thor. And Mondays were our day off uh, there. That was me shepherding the sheep. Um, Mondays were our day off uh, at camp after a busy retreat Weekends Usually one Monday morning during our relaxed day off coffee time at our house there on camp, the radio starts blowing up. Ma is down. Ma is down. She's by the pond. I hear Dwight, our maintenance guy, screaming through the walkie-talkie. Uh, It turns out some neighbors' crazy dogs had gotten loose and had gotten on camp, and about a half a dozen of them were attacking Ma. They were biting her, dragging her around, uh, and so on. So I ran out to meet Dwight, uh, and we found Ma by the pond, like he said, on her back, legs straight up in the air, just laying there. That was her defense, (laughs) to just lay there. Come to find out, this is actually not uncommon with sheep. When harassed or threatened, they will often just roll over with her feet straight up in the air. And this was called being downcast. Uh, Ma ended up okay, uh, no thanks to her own lack of effort. Uh, she had some cuts on her legs, and she was pretty skittish after that, but we hadn't sheared the sheep recently, so they, um, she had a thick coat of wool to protect her from the worst of the dog bites. Uh, a few years later, I was reading to the girls the little kids' devotional book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing by Sally Lloyd Jones, who's also the author of the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, there in your rose. Uh, and I found this picture. This is a, a picture from the book. And I ordered a print. From Yago immediately, and it hangs in front of my desk there uh, in my office. I also have a sheep Ottoman. But not only do these things remind me of Ma and Thor and our time at camp, but more importantly, it reminds me of what Sally Lloyd Jones writes. She says this in that book She says, What animal does the Bible say 400 times that people are most like? Oh dear, it's sheep. Sheep aren't clever at all. If you were here last week, you might remember that little clip of the sheep pulled, pulled out of the pit right back in it, right? That's sheep. Sheep are foolish, she says. For instance, sometimes they just topple over and they can't get themselves up again. They just lie there. Sheep are completely helpless and on their own and desperately need a shepherd and so on. So why all this talk about sheep? Well, maybe you caught it in our scripture reading for this morning or in some of the songs that we sang. There's a refrain that the psalmist repeats. And it goes like this, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil, or why are you disturbed within me? Why are you downcast? To be cast down or downcast here is really another way of talking about depression. You know, we've come a long way in our understanding of depression we've, uh, and mental illness, certainly in my lifetime, but even back thousands of years ago, The psalmist knew and experienced what we would almost certainly call depression. And these summer psalms, this week's text, this was all planned out like a year or more ago. Josh plans sermon series for like a year or more when he's procrastinating about something else. Uh, He loves this kind of planning. So this has been on the docket for a long time. You know, with these psalms, as I said last week, we keep coming back to them year after year. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us why the psalms are so important for us. He says, here in the Psalms, we're able to watch noble souls struggling with their problems and with themselves. They talk to themselves and to their souls, burying their hearts, analyzing their problems, chiding and encouraging themselves. Sometimes they're elated, at other times depressed, but they are always honest with themselves. That's why they are of such real value to us as if we also are honest with ourselves. That's from his book, Spiritual Depression. That's what we're talking about this morning. Depression. Author and RUF minister, Sammy Rhodes, says that the best description of depression he's ever heard, and he is one himself who's been open about his battle with depression, it comes from the novel, novel The Marriage Plot. Uh, now, I've never read this novel, so don't take this as an endorsement, but listen to this description of depression. This is the character Darlene talking at an AA meeting. She says, here I am again, and there have been, things have been a little hard lately financial problems, emotional problems. My life's getting better, but it ain't getting any easier. One thing I learned between addiction and depression, depression is a lot worse. Depression ain't something you just get off of. You can't get clean from depression. Depression be like a bruise that never goes away, a bruise in your mind. You just got to be careful not to touch where it hurts. It always be there, though. And Sammy continues, he says, the thing I've noticed about a bruise is sometimes you know what caused it, and sometimes you look down and you have a little dark bluish spot on your arm and you have no idea where it came from. You know, I considered listing out the symptoms of depression from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, but you can look that up. And honestly, it doesn't really matter whether we've been diagnosed with clinical depression or whatever, life tells us. And God has long known that we are all downcast at one time or another. Not only do we know this anecdotally, but a Gallup report that came out in May told us that depression is more widespread in the U.S. than ever before. More than one in six adults say that they are currently depressed or receiving treatment for depression. Nearly three in 10 have been clinically diagnosed with depression at some point in their lives. And young adults are reporting higher rates of depression than any other age group. Nearly one quarter of adults under 30 say they are currently depressed. We shouldn't be surprised by this, really. The Bible has been telling us for eons, not only in Psalms, like ours for this morning, but throughout the scriptures and the lives of the prophets, that depression is something that we will all deal with to one extent or another. Our world is broken. Things are not as they should be. Certainly not all of us will have clinically diagnosed depression, but spiritual depression, being downcast is real. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, stay tuned, it will. Let's walk through Psalms 42 and 43 this morning. They really are one psalm. The same refrain shows up in both of them. Let's see what we can see about this spiritual depression and see if there's anything we can do about it. We'll look at the condition and then some countermeasures and then look to Jesus, of course, as we head toward the Lord's Supper. Our condition and then some countermeasures. So let's just drop in to see what condition our condition is in. Now, I probably should have already given this disclaimer. Talking about depression is a minefield, right? It's not simple. So I apologize for ways that I will oversimplify. And it's sensitive. So I ask your forgiveness in the ways that I might sound insensitive. I guess this is just me asking for your grace as we dive into a tough topic. So right at the beginning... Of our psalm. In the, re- in the refrain, we see it three times. And really, throughout the psalm, we hear the psalmist talk about what he calls his soul. Now, soul here is not what we might think of as a disembodied self, like maybe if you saw the Pixar movie, Soul. Yeah, not that, right, the opposite of that. When the psalmist talks about his soul, he's talking about his whole self the core of himself. We might say guts, right? Like we have a gut feeling and we go with our gut. The idea isn't a a disembodied spirit, but rather a whole multifaceted embodied self. And we see the whole multifaceted self reflected in the way the psalmist talks about the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual experience he's having, so right out of the gates, he says he's thirsty for God, so thirsty that he's like a deer panting for streams of water. And this isn't like a little thirsty. This is like a deer dying of thirst, totally parched, maybe having been chased by a hunter or separated from water by far, from, for, for far too long and staggering to a stream bed where he expects there to be water, but to find the stream bed bone dry. Gone are the green pastures and still waters and comfort of Psalm Twenty-three. No, the psalmist is dying of thirst here. That's what's going on in his soul. That first part describes his soul's thirst like a deer parched and desperate for water, which is a metaphor. But things get really physical when he says this in verse 3. Tears have been my food day and night. So we see the psalmist isn't eating. He's lost his appetite, as we sang. Right? The only food that he is consuming are his tears. So we see he's crying all the time day and night, right? He's not sleeping because the only way you're crying in the middle of the night is if you're awake. He's not eating well. He has no appetite. Some symptoms of depression or changes in appetite or trouble sleeping or sleeping too much. Check and check. The psalmist's downcastness is manifested physically in his body. In our culture, we have a tendency sometimes to bifurcate the body and the spirit, but they are really inextricably and inexplicably linked. Now, I'm out of my lane here, but I've talked with some of you in the medical field, and I've heard you talk about how our body and spirit and emotions are all so intertwined, and we're really only beginning to realize to what extent and how that all works. Bible doesn't give us the scientific details on how it all works, but it is always acknowledged that we are human beings, embodied creatures with a heart, a mind, and a spirit with desires and hopes and doubts spiritually and aches and pains physically and complex feelings and hurts emotionally, and somehow they're all tangled up together to make us us. We are embodied beings, and when things are out of sort physically— that can exacerbate or even be the catalyst for depression. Some of us or some of our loved ones live with real chronic pain. Our bodily hurts, intense thirst, lack of hunger, lack of sleep, injuries, illnesses, these can be causes of of, or symptoms of depression. We end up downcast. The psalmist here also expresses his emotional condition. He says he experiences taunts all day in verses three and verses 10. He says he is mourning because he's oppressed by his enemies in verse nine and then in the first verse of Psalm 43. He's disillusioned with life, partially because he remembers and misses the good old days when he felt joy and gladness, enjoying worshiping with God's people. We might say he's like panged with nostalgia. The remembering itself is hurtful. Thinking about what was, thinking about a a before time. You know, for a long time, and honestly, sometimes still, I find myself unhelpfully thinking about a before time in my life. Some of y'all know that when I was 17, my dad took his own life. That was definitely a before and after day, April 25th, 1994. But I used to more often, and I sometimes still do now, unfortunately, think back, and I wonder if that experience somehow ruined me or shaped me in such a way that marked me irreparably for the worse. Now, ultimately, it's an unhelpful question, right? Because those thoughts tell me more about what I feel and fear about an experience rather than what is true. What if questions like this just show us more about what we feel and fear about a situation rather than giving us anything helpful in the way of answers to our questions. But I find that when I dwell on it, the remembering back actually hurts. Like the psalmist remembering back to those days when he was celebrating and life was all levity and shouts of praise and songs in the house of God. It can be painful to remember when things were good, when worship was sweet when we felt joy and contentment deeply, and now we cannot. Painful when we're back in the pit, like we talked about last week. The psalmist's depression is manifesting in ways physical, emotional, and also in spiritual ways. The thirst and appetite metaphor at the beginning of Psalm 42 definitely refers to his spiritual dryness, right? The thirst is for God, because all he's experiencing in his relationship with God is deadness, dryness, Emptiness, drought. Note that it's not intellectual doubts. This is gut wrenching experience of feeling like God has abandoned you, or even turned against you. In verse nine, he says, "God, why have you forgotten me?" He says, "Your breakers, your breakers, and your waves are crashing down on me." The enemies taunt with the question, "Where is your God?" And the psalmist is in such a dark place that he has no answer. In fact, he's wondering and asking the same thing. One commentator says, the psalm offers no intellectual solution to the problem of God's absence. It provides instead a dialectical framework for reflecting on one's feelings, both of alienation and of longing. Now, this spiritual one is a tough one to admit, especially in church. It can be difficult enough to admit when we are physically hurting and ask for help might be harder yet to admit when we're struggling emotionally. We may not even be aware of our own feelings, let alone want to share them with somebody else. And then in church, to admit that you feel like God has abandoned you. But note that that's exactly what this psalmist does. I think I may have shared this here before, but earlier this year I read a book called Low Anthropology by a guy named David Zoll. And on the last page of the book, he says this. He says, a church with low anthropology is a place to bring your failures and your shame. It is a place to lay those things down, to hear about second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Even more than a place to come together, it is a place to fall apart. And there's always room for a few more faces. Even more than a place to come together, church is a place to fall apart. How amazing would that be for us as a community to have the honesty of the psalmist, to bring our failures and our shame, our depression and struggles, physical, emotional, and spiritual, out into the light. For New City to be a place where we come together, yes, to worship and celebrate and eat together and laugh together, we're good at that, but also to fall apart. Let's turn the corner and look at what we can do. countermeasures. I'm calling these countermeasures instead of cures because honestly, there may not be a cure for your depression or whatever ailment you've got. I find it fascinating and remarkable that Jesus was a healer. He did all kinds of miracles, right? Healing and delivering people from what was afflicting them. This was a sign and a proof of the kingdom that he was who he said he was. But I also find it kind of sad and funny in a really dark and disturbing way that all the people Jesus healed, they all eventually died. And Jesus didn't heal everyone of everything. even the Apostle Paul, we know, struggled with an ailment that he said he prayed intensely over and over again to have taken away. But God didn't take it away. Paul called it the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is, but whatever it was, he had to live with it. And he says it taught him that God's grace is sufficient, that in weakness, God's strength is somehow shown. All that is to say, these are countermeasures and not cures, right? Because we can't totally control our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. There's so much of it that's outside of our control. However, we can do what we can do so that God can do what he can do. So I've heard spiritual disciplines described. We do what we can do, and God does what he does. Not that he couldn't do it anyway, but it's us doing our part, putting in the work. It's us trying, knowing that we can't totally control the outcome. In order to go back to that metaphor of a bruise in our mind, a bruise has to heal from the inside out, but there are things we can do to help the healing process. None of these things are a quick fix or a simple solution. We're complex, multifaceted, emotional, embodied spiritual beings. And the solution isn't just buck up, toughen up, rub some dirt on it, stuff it deep down where no one will see it, move along. All right, so with all those caveats, here's some countermeasures. First, seek medical help. If you're struggling with depression, talk to your doctor. I sound like an advertisement. Um, In other areas of our health, we do this, right? You go to the doctor for your annual physical. You know, they take your blood pressure. They take your blood, you almost pass out. I almost, that's just me, I almost pass out when they do that. Um, Then the results come back, you've got high cholesterol, right? What what doctors, they they tell everyone, right, to do is to change their diet, cut out high cholesterol foods and such, and exercise, right, diet and exercise, diet and exercise. That's what they tell all of us, right? You go to the doctor, that's what they're going to tell you. Now, some people might need to take medicine, like Lipitor or whatever it's called, right, to get their cholesterol under control. Similarly, when we are downcast, we can all benefit from healthy sleep patterns, a healthy diet, exercise, and so on. Some of us will need medicine. Just like someone might need Lipitor to help get their cholesterol manageable, knowing that it won't completely cure the cholesterol issue, some of us might need medicine to help us get our body's chemistry back into some semblance of order. If you're struggling with depression, seek help, be evaluated by a medical professional. if, If... Prescribed medication by a trusted doctor to follow the prescription. There's nothing wrong or immoral or shameful or anti-Christian about seeking medical help or taking medicine for your mental health on the advice of your trusted doctor, any more than there's shame in taking antibiotics for an infection or Lipitor for cholesterol. Taking medicine does not mean that things will be all better immediately or completely or even eventually with just medicine. As we've been saying, we're complex, multifaceted creatures, physical, spiritual, and emotional. Secondly, take care of your body. You know, maybe you don't need medicine, but you're still a body. And our physical health is no joke, and it sounds really not spiritual, right? But do things like stay hydrated, wear comfortable shoes, stretch, take walks. Get outside, get a good night's sleep each night, be physically active. And I'm not telling you anything that your smartwatch doesn't already like remind you to do all the time. It's time to stand. Um, campus minister and author Sammy Rhodes says some things that have helped him break the cycle of depression are, are this. And he says, eating, fast food, eating less fast food and more whole foods, jogging, getting out of my head, getting together with friends, watching lots of Netflix with my wife, take the physical as seriously as the spiritual. Depressed people aren't looking for another book. Give them a steak instead, preferably an expensive one, and pair it with a loaded baked potato. And if you want to get really spiritual, a whole pan of Sister Schubert rolls. Did you hear how many of those things you were saying were like physical embodied activities? You're an embodied being. Our bodies are how we experience the world, engage with the world, and relate to the world around us. Take care of your body. What I left out of that quote was what Sammy Rhodes said there after the bit about Netflix. He said, counseling, counseling, and counseling. Did I mention counseling? Okay, good, because that's important. The third thing is grow in emotional health. Counseling can be a terrific resource to help us grow in our emotional health and heal. One pastor I know says, everyone should have their expensive friend. Now he means counselor, not a friend who always goes to the restroom right when it's time to pay the bill. Not that kind of expensive friend. And his point is well taken, right? If we will indeed eventually all face some sort of downcastness or depression, it's probably wise to have a relationship with a trusted counselor, somebody we might visit regularly if we're in an acute situation. Other times it might be an annual or every other year checkup, so to say. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which we've done theology labs on around here, Pastor Pete Scazzaro lays out his story about how he neglected his emotional health as a pastor, thinking that it had nothing to do with his spiritual maturity and how doing so almost crushed crushed him. He almost lost his church, his family, his life. And he argues that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. And he advocates for experiencing our feelings, reflecting on our feelings, digging into our pasts, and reckoning with whatever needs reckoning with. And a counselor can be a tremendous help uh, in doing that. But growing in our emotional health uh, isn't just limited to professional counseling. Uh, A friend here introduced me to this Seeing Jesus journal. Uh, It provides sort of a a worksheet or flow for your daily time with God. And one of the unique aspects of this journal is that it has you take time to reflect on what you're feeling. So you, you start by connecting to your heart, there in the back, there's a feelings wheel. Have you seen this thing? It's a feelings wheel. It helps you kind of dial in what you're feeling. You should give something like this a try. There's some of these journals out on the bookshelf in the commons. You know, and of course, the Psalms are a great resource for our emotional intelligence. Pray the Psalms. We said it last week. It'll probably be an application every week throughout the sermon series. Pray the Psalms. Pour out your soul. Tell God when you don't feel his presence that it kind of scares you or ticks you off. Tell God you don't want to pray, but maybe you want to want to pray. Remember, the Psalms will awaken us to our emotions, and they'll expand our emotional intelligence. And then we need to feed our spirit. One way the psalmist here feeds his spirit is by preaching to himself. Yes, we should read the Bible and pray, but saying to someone, just read the Bible more and pray more, and everything will be fine in time, it's Kind of unhelpful. Right, what the psalmist seems to be doing here is getting the truth of the scriptures from his head to his heart by preaching to himself and doing so repeatedly. He's taken this little refrain and he's kind of made it his own. I mean, it's like he says it like an affirmation over and over again. And as we've seen, the psalmist is pressed by factors, internal and external, and doubts, taunts from enemies, a thirst for God who seems absent, aching memories of better times. And what does he do? He says over and over again, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist stops listening passively to whatever's going on and all those voices. And he goes on the offensive, so to say. He questions himself, and then he tells himself what to do and why He does the hard work of asking why he's feeling what he's feeling, and then he feeds his spirit by telling himself to hope in God, for he will praise him again someday. He reminds himself that God is his salvation, and even though it doesn't feel like it, God is still his God. He's talking to himself, telling himself the truth. Commentator Christopher Ash says, talking to yourself is not necessarily, in fact, a sign of madness— but it's very probably an expression of sanity, asking yourself questions, reasoning with yourself, talking yourself out of one emotional state and into another better frame of mind. Says talking to yourself is a good idea. Feed your starving spirit by preaching the gospel to yourself. You can do this individually, but you don't have to, right? You don't have to go it alone. That's why the rest of us are here. You can feed your spirit by coming to worship week after week after week, right? Like, like meals, you might remember a few meals from your life, but most of them are forgotten. That doesn't mean they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Hopefully you enjoyed them, right? You ate with people you care about, they fed you, and they sustained you, but ultimately you forgot, right? In the same way, we probably can't remember particularly weeks of worship or most of the sermons we've ever heard. You likely won't remember this one. You know, maybe a couple sermons stand out from your life, but if you've been a part of a church family for a while, for years, you've heard hundreds and hundreds of sermons, and you don't remember them. But coming to worship, singing together, praying the prayers, listening to the scriptures, coming to the Lord's Supper, these aren't one-and-done activities. It's like meals, right? You have to keep having them. One meal doesn't do it. Most of us have a couple few meals every day. That's what worship is. Each week does for us. It feeds our spirit. Same thing with small groups. Right? In our small groups, where our spirits are fed by one another, we gather around the scriptures, we share about what's happening in our lives, we pray for one another, we fall apart in the context of a caring community. So join a group here. The cloud of witnesses here at New City, uh, in our community groups, they have like a buoying effect, like a life jacket that gives us some float when everything else makes it feel like we're drowning. Community groups are starting up here soon, the week after Labor Day. You'll be hearing more about those in the coming weeks. Now look, I recognize that these applications might seem really simple, if not easy. And again, I'm not saying that these cure all. They're countermeasures. One of my favorite bands sings, life is a long, hard road with a good, good end. They're not cure-all practices, but some things that we can do to aid in the healing of the bruise, so to say. You know, and it likely won't be easy. When we're downcast, it's when the spiritual disciplines require discipline and when they feel like disciplines. All right, so as we wrap up, let's look to Jesus. As Hebrews tells us, consider him, consider Jesus so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of Jesus's betrayal and torture, he said these words, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Those words are almost certainly a riff off of this psalm, maybe a direct quotation. Jesus felt all of this, too. When we thirst like a deer on the verge of death, we look to Jesus on the cross, dying, saying, I am thirsty. He told us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We see the water of life, thirsting as he died the death we should have died. When we feel taunted and harassed by those opposed to us and to our faith, we look to Jesus, who was mocked. Taunted, beaten, and spit upon. When we feel abandoned by God, we look to Jesus who was abandoned by God for our sake, crawling out, crying out on the cross, Psalm 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we need vindication, rescue, life to be restored, we look to Jesus who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. He rose from the dead conquering death so that we too might rise with him and live that life that is truly life. Some of y'all may have heard of Charles Spurgeon. He was probably the most famous Baptist preacher of all time, one of the first megachurch pastors. Thousands would come to hear him preach at his church in the 1800s. His sermons were extraordinary. People still read them today. What's less known about Spurgeon is, is his lifelong battle with depression, It said that there were times when he would be gone from the pulpit for two to three months at a time. Sometimes he would get up to preach and he would be overwhelmed, bowing his head, hardly able to look up. And he said this, depression of spirit is no index of declining grace. Depression of spirit is no index of declining grace. You hear what he said? If you're depressed, it doesn't mean God's grace for you has gone down. Zach Eswine elaborates in his book, called Spurgeon's Sorrows. It's a book that discusses, discusses depression and the life of Charles Spurgeon. Eswine writes this, riffing off of this quote from Spurgeon. He says, it is Christ, not the absence of depression, that saves us. So we declare this truth. Our sense of God's absence does not mean that he is so absent. Though our bodily gloom allows us no feeling of his tender touch, he holds on to us still. Our feelings of him do not save us, he does. Our hope, therefore, does not reside in our ability to preserve a good mood, but in his ability to bear us up. Jesus will never abandon us with our downcast heart. In Christ, you are not alone. He has not left you. God will never leave you or let you go. It might feel like it. In fact, it probably will feel like it but he will never leave you nor forsake you. You may lose him, but he will never lose you. Your depression might not ever go away, quickly or ever, but God won't go away either. Jesus will never abandon us with our downcast hearts. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's New City C.
1: INCY.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.